This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Investigators are reviewing clues in the cross-country road trip of a Canadian man that ended in his death. He didn't leave an explanation with anybody, didn't write a note, uh, just left and uh, ended up dead. Blair Adams was a 31-year-old Canadian man. In 1996, he was found dead in Knoxville, Tennessee thousands of miles away from his home. He died from a blow to his stomach, most certainly caused by someone else. Scattered around his body was almost $4,000 in cash, in multiple currencies, and $2,000 in gold and jewelry. In the days before his death, Adams demonstrated increasing paranoia and thought someone was trying to kill him, but never said who or why. The events leading up to his death made no sense at all. Robert Dennis Blair Adams was born and raised in Surrey, British Columbia, on the west coast of Canada. His friends and family said he was a friendly, optimistic young man. He worked as a foreman at a construction company and seemed to enjoy his job. But in early 1996, people close to him started seeing a change in his personality. He had mood swings and bouts of anxiety. He was short-tempered. He wasn't sleeping. Adams was a recovering alcoholic who attended AA meetings for two years, but he suddenly stopped showing up. His mother questioned him about the changes in his behavior. All he said to her was, I don't think I should tell you about it, and nothing else. On Friday, July 5, 1996, Adams went to his bank and withdrew almost all of his savings, totaling $6,000. He emptied his safe deposit box that contained jewelry, gold bars, and platinum worth thousands more. He then drove his red Chevrolet Chevette four hours to visit his uncle in Courtney, B.C., out on Vancouver Island. His uncle wasn't expecting him and was not at home. Two days later, on Sunday, July 7th, Adams tried to board a ferry headed from Victoria, B.C. to Seattle, Washington, but he was stopped by U.S. immigration officials. They were understandably suspicious of a young man traveling with such a large amount of cash. They suspected he might be a drug trafficker. When questioned, Adams told border officials he did not have a criminal record. When they ran a check, however, they discovered previous convictions for drugs and assault, so border officials denied him entry to the United States. Forced to turn around, Adams headed back home to Surrey. Along the way, he visited a friend in Vancouver. She later told police that Adams had seemed depressed. That evening, he arrived at his mother's house. When his mother, Sandra, saw her son, she knew something was very wrong. His behavior over the past few weeks had been extremely out of character, but now he seemed paranoid. He told Sandra, someone's been spreading rumors about me, but refused to elaborate any further. The next morning, Monday, July 8th, Adams packed his bags and left his mother's house. It was the last time she saw him alive.
my name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Adams went to his workplace and quit. He didn't even bother collecting his last paycheck. Next, he bought a $1,600 plane ticket to Frankfurt, Germany, scheduled to leave the next day. But why Frankfurt? This was never determined. Adams had lived there for four months a couple of years earlier, working for his stepfather's construction company. He started dating a woman he'd met there, and authorities hypothesized that he might be heading to Germany to see her again. However, when investigators contacted her, she said she hadn't heard from him and was not expecting a visit. After purchasing the plane ticket, Adams briefly visited a nearby friend. He asked her to drive him to the border and help him cross into the U.S. He told her that someone wanted him dead. She later described the conversation as frenetic. She told him that she wasn't able to help, and he left. Before sunrise on July 9th, Adams was found near the Canadian-U.S. border. He was trying to cross on foot. When authorities stopped him, they thought he also might be a car thief. A blue car stolen in Vancouver had been found nearby, and Adams matched the description of the thief. He was dazed and confused, but insisted he was innocent of the crime. With no evidence to hold Adams, police quickly released him. Later on, the friend that he had visited the day before would tell authorities that he arrived in a blue car, not his usual red Chevrolet Chevette. Later that morning, Adams did not board his booked flight to Frankfurt. He turned in his ticket for a refund and used the money to rent a car. He abandoned his red Chevette at the airport and drove the rental car to the Canada-U.S. border. This time, he successfully made it across. Adams headed for Seattle. He left the rental car at the Seattle airport and bought an $800 one-way red-eye ticket to Washington, D.C. He could have purchased a round-trip ticket for half the price, potentially a sign that he wasn't thinking clearly. He arrived at Dulles Airport in D.C. around dawn on Wednesday, July 10th. He rented a white Toyota Camry and drove 500 miles, about seven hours, southwest toward Knoxville. It's never been determined why Adams went to Knoxville. He knew no one there. He'd never been to the U.S. South before. Adams told his mother that he was heading to the 1996 Summer Olympic Games in Atlanta, which were starting 10 days after he left Canada. But Knoxville is over 200 miles from Atlanta, and Dulles, where Adams landed, is 650 miles from Atlanta. If this was his intent, he certainly did not take the most direct route. On the drive from Dulles to Knoxville, Adams had a minor traffic collision. In a small town in Virginia, he backed his rented Camry into someone's vehicle. The collision only caused minor damage, but he did the right thing and stopped. The other motorist later told police that Adams seemed nice, but was in a hurry. Blair arrived in Knoxville in the early evening on July 10th. Just before 6 p.m., he stopped at a gas station. He told the attendant that he was having problems and couldn't start his car. The attendant called a mechanic who quickly diagnosed the problem. Adams was trying to start the Camry with keys to a totally different car. He was trying to use the keys from the rental car he drove from Vancouver to Seattle 
The mechanic later told a local newspaper that he didn't appear to be messed up, he didn't appear to be on drugs, but his mind wasn't functioning correctly for some reason. The mechanic suggested that Adams check his pockets. As he pointed out, if he got the car to the gas station, he had to have the keys somewhere. But he refused to look. The mechanic said, I thought he was nuts. He was bound and determined that he had the key he needed for that car. With little else he could do to help, the mechanic had the Camry towed to a repair shop and gave Adams a lift to the nearby Fairfield Inn. In the same interview, the mechanic said Adams got out of the car and walked off without his luggage. The mechanic took it to him and then headed home. Once at the hotel, Adams's strange behavior continued. The clerk at the desk remembered him vividly because he walked in and out of the lobby five times over the course of an hour before he booked a room. In an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, the clerk said the best way to describe him would be paranoid, nervous, agitated, expecting someone to come in on him, though there wasn't anybody there. The entire bizarre scene was captured on the hotel's CCTV. Adams eventually booked a room and paid with $100 in cash. Instead of going to his room, however, he immediately left the hotel. The room was never used, and Adams was never seen alive again. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Twelve hours later, at 7.30 a.m. on July 11, 1996, two construction workers found Blair Adams' body. The construction site where he was found was about half a mile from his hotel. He was found naked from the waist down. His pants and socks were inside out, as if they had been pulled off him. His shirt was ripped open. One of his shoes was found under his head. The other was nearby. Scattered around him on the ground, was $4,000 in Canadian, American, and German currency. A black fanny pack containing the jewelry, gold, and platinum he took from his safe deposit box was lying next to his body. The keys to his rental car, which he told the mechanic he did not have, were found about 10 feet away. Also found nearby were the card key to his unused hotel room and a duffel bag containing maps and travel receipts. The cause of death was a blow to his abdomen that ruptured his stomach likely from a club or crowbar. He also had a gash on his forehead, probably from being struck by the same weapon. A search of the construction site failed to yield any sign of a possible murder weapon. He had cuts and abrasions that appeared to be defensive wounds. His bloodied hands indicated that he'd fought for his life. Clumps of hair had been torn from his head during the fight. It also appeared that he had been sexually assaulted although there was no DNA evidence to prove this. No signs of drugs or alcohol were found in his system. The autopsy also found one long strand of hair clutched in his hand. 
This is the only clue investigators found that they could possibly link to Adams's killer. Well, Knoxville police investigating a homicide out of East Knoxville. We're told officers were called to the scene just off of Selma Avenue a little after 8 o'clock last night. Authorities quickly worked to determine who killed Blair Adams and why. They started by trying to piece together his movements in the hours before his death. The autopsy found meat, shrimp, and lettuce in his stomach, so they determined that he likely ate dinner after he left the hotel. Two women contacted law enforcement to say that they had seen a man matching his description talking to another man outside a Cracker Barrel restaurant that evening. Investigators created a composite sketch of the second man based on their descriptions. That man, however, was never identified, possibly because the women gave conflicting versions of what he looked like. Another potential sighting that night was reported by employees of a truck stop a half-hour drive east of Knoxville. They claimed to have spotted him looking at magazines and chatting to another man about Canadian currency. But Adams didn't have a car, so authorities didn't think he could get this far out of the city. Police canvassed businesses near the site where his body was found. A security guard reported that around 3.30 a.m., he heard a short, sharp scream. However, he thought it came from a woman, not a man. Because Adams was found half-naked with potential signs of sexual assault, investigators explored the possibility that his death was a sex act gone horribly wrong. Another local truck stop near Adams's hotel was a known spot for sex workers, so police considered that he had solicited sex and had been attacked by a prostitute or a pimp. His hands had signs of gravel rash. One police theory on this was that the sex act had started in a car and after he was attacked, he was pushed out onto the asphalt. No meaningful leads developed from the sex worker theory, however. There was also the ongoing question of why a sex worker would attack Adams but not steal his money, gold, and jewelry. Shortly after, the case went completely cold. It's been 25 years since Blair Adams died. The lead investigator on the case, Knox County Sheriff Jimmy Jones, called his death the most interesting and strangest case in his entire 38-year career so far. It's certainly a case with more questions than answers. Adams's movements and behavior were increasingly erratic and bizarre. He told his friends in Canada that people were trying to kill him. He almost went to Germany and at the last minute traveled across the continent to a city where he knew no one. There was almost no physical evidence at the crime scene. None of his possessions were stolen. These facts make this case a tough one to crack. But just because it's a cold case doesn't mean the Knox County Police aren't still investigating it. David Davenport, the chief of the local cold case unit, said in an interview, Son, we don't quit on a murder case. Anyone with information on the death of Blair Adams should contact the Knox County Sheriff's Department. Blair Adams isn't the only one whose last days sparked more questions than answers. When John Parsons Wheeler III, a well-known Washington, D.C. insider, was found dead in a Delaware landfill on New Year's Eve 2010, investigators would quickly realize this was not a typical case. Thanks, guys. This is a Fox News alert, and 
Happy New Year. We have got breaking news on a high-profile murder mystery. Right now, police are trying to piece together clues in the death of this man. John Wheeler had a long and illustrious career of service to our country. John Wheeler, known as Jack to those who knew him, was no stranger to Washington politics. He served as a former White House aide to not just one, but three different presidents. His credentials did not stop there. He was also a senior planner for Amtrak Railway, an official at the Securities and Exchange Commission, chief executive of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and chairman of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, just to name a few. The circumstances of Wheeler's death were strange enough, but it's the events leading to his disappearance that created the most confusion. Two days before his body was found, he was captured on CCTV cameras in Wilmington, Delaware, walking into a parking garage. He can be seen speaking with a garage attendant. Nothing strange about that. But what did seem strange is the fact that he was wearing only one shoe and did not have a coat in the cold winter weather. He explained to the attendant that he had been robbed and that his briefcase had been stolen. Uh, I was closing down the garage and an uh, older guy, he came knocking on the window. He said that he just wanted to come in and get warm before he paid for his ticket. And he, he must have got on the elevator and he walked around the garage. So, like, when he came back, I was talking to him. I was asking him, like, what kind of car do you have? Where's your ticket? He said his ticket was inside of his briefcase. I asked, where was his briefcase at? He said his briefcase was stolen. He wasn't slurring. There was no blood. He wasn't staggering. He was just like kind of like shuffling along. What really struck me as being odd was that he didn't have a coat on and he had a shoe in his hand. He didn't ask me to call the police. I, I asked him if he, wanted, if he needed money or anything. He said no. He, he didn't look homeless. After failing to locate his car, he left. The vehicle would later be found at a different parking garage. Later the same day, he walked into a nearby pharmacy and approached the pharmacist. He asked if he could get a ride, but when the employee said he would call a taxi, Wheeler left. The next day, he was seen on several security cameras loitering outside a few office buildings. It was close to 8.30 p.m., and witnesses said that he was acting lost and confused. He was approached by several people offering assistance, but he declined the help and left the area, no longer visible on surveillance cameras. Fourteen hours later, his badly beaten body was discovered in Wilmington's Cherry Island Landfill. His body was initially left in a garbage dumpster 15 miles away from Wilmington in Newark, Delaware. Authorities are not sure how he made it to Newark without his car, or if he was alive when he got there. On the following day, December 31, 2010, the dumpster containing his body was emptied and the contents transported to the Wilmington Landfill. John Wheeler, the driving force behind the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and former White House and Pentagon aide, was found dead on New Year's Eve, buried in the trash. A crime that seems to get more baffling with every new clue. When police arrived, they noted the condition of his body and determined that his cause of death was blunt force trauma. The 66-year-old had sustained lethal blows with an unknown object. Robbery was ruled out almost right away, as Wheeler was still wearing his expensive Rolex watch and ring. No further evidence was left at the scene, leaving detectives with little to go on. At the time of his murder, Wheeler was working for a defense contractor specializing in cybersecurity. Theories emerged that his death was somehow connected to his high-level security clearance, and that it was likely a professional hit job. 
Adding fuel to this theory was the fact that on the same day as his body was discovered, his home was broken into. Police were unable to find the intruder, however, which only added to the ongoing mystery. This had to be a professional hit job. Uh, I got my last email from Jack on the 21st. Uh, other people have gotten them on Christmas Day. And he had a very large electronic footprint. He put out hundreds of emails a day, perhaps. And uh, he had lots of connections. Most of the well-known correspondents in the D.C. area knew him, had worked with him. So something went amiss. And the way he was dumped into that landfill tells me that somebody deliberately went out and got him. Now, I don't know why, but he had the highest security clearances this nation has, and it needs to be looked at by the FBI. Something is very, very wrong and a great tragedy to America. Another theory surrounding his death stems from a disagreement with his neighbor. According to investigators, the neighbor was building a new house that was going to block his view of the nearby park and river. While that in itself isn't suspicious, what was curious was the report of a smoke bomb being set off inside the unfinished home two days prior to Wheeler's murder. Like all theories surrounding this case, nothing ever came of it. Over a decade later, just like with the case of Blair Adams, investigators are no closer to solving the mysterious death of John Wheeler. There's a disconnect between him being in the dumpster and that behavior that we see in the hours before he disappeared. I think the association is with the odd behavior that you're seeing. When people do suffer from organic problems, you have to understand that they behave in bizarre ways that can happen very quickly. And it is entirely possible he crawled into the dumpster himself mm. in his demented state. So we may never know the truth about what happened to John Wheeler. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. A huge thanks as always for listening. I'll be back on May 4th with all new episodes.
the Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.